So, we're in part two of our considerations, or part two of our spiritual detox, let me say it like that. Um, last week, we started our first part of Fruit Not Flesh, and we're in Galatians 5. And in many ways, this follows on from the, the teaching prior to that in terms of the real war of the worlds and the consideration of the mind being the battlefield in which the Christian is engaged in warfare and where there are often issues that um, are quite deep-seated in our lives that come to the fore at certain times and we can tend to struggle with them, um, maybe even not having a conscious understanding of why it is we have these struggles. And so last week, um, we gave our attention to Galatians 5, and um, I'm going to recap some of the verses in our reading from last week as we move into our focus for this week. And so turn with me, if you will, to Galatians 5, um, looking at verses 16 to 26. And I'm trusting that as you're turning there, um, we are being encouraged as to the reality of our Christian walk and the reality of God's provision for us in Christ Jesus. Um, I think that we can all um, recognize that actually the Christian life is impossible, as somebody once said. It's not something that we can do in our own strength. It's not something that we can live out in our own ability. And on a day-to-day -day basis, we encounter the tension and conflict of that experience of trying to work it out. Um, and so I'm trusting that as we look at these texts in more depth, it will enable us, it will equip us, it will empower us to walk out our faith and our relationship with the Lord with greater conviction and effectiveness. Amen? Galatians 5, 16 to 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you because this is your word and you are so kind and so generous that you have given us your son and having given us your son, there is no good thing that you withhold from your people. This is what your word tells us. And in this, we see that, Lord, you have given us your precious word by which our lives are illuminated with your light. We also thank you, Lord, for the presence of your spirit who helps us to engage with your word, to immerse ourselves in your word, and to also be transformed by your word. And so this is our prayer today. 
work in us and among us as we seek to bring you pleasure, Lord, to give you glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. So verse 17, there's this conflict. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Attention that is ever real. An internal conflict that we have no choice not only to recognize but to, to deal with. And yet, thankfully, we are being given insight as to how to do that. Now, we talked last week about the flesh, and it's first and foremost, again, I kind of just state the disclaimer. As we're dealing with trying to understand these things, let's just appreciate that we're dealing with trying to understand mysteries. <coughs> we're dealing with trying to understand mysteries. Some of you sat in your A-level maths class and you know that feeling. You've <laughs> completed your GCSEs and you got into A-level maths thinking it was going to be more of the same. And you just felt like, what are these symbols in front of me? And what is this person saying? It's a mystery. And you had to take time to apply yourself and consider these things and go away and do your homework and think about it. And then progressively the clarity came and you became a bit more familiar and to the point where you just aced your A-level maths. No, there's some, some people have that test of me. Don't, don't, don't be um, <laughs> envious of them. <laughs> And so these are not things that necessarily come, become clear quickly. And so if you find that, you know, this is, this is hard to get your head around, that's okay. We all appreciate that. In fact, it was a blessing because this week, after the, the message last week, um, I had some really great interaction with people just on the matter. Um, community group, the Friday community group got together. And having got together and just kind of working through this, we're left with questions at the end of it. And, and I was like, praise be to God, we're actually wrestling with this. And so the blessing is in the wrestling, as Jacob would tell you, or Terry Garman. Anyway, you bless me, Lord, it's fine. <laughs> so how do we understand the flesh? Um, a couple of verses as we move forward into this, that's going to help us. Um, Ephesians 2 verse 3. Among whom we all live, this is, this is Paul speaking to believers, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And so there's this camaraderie between the body and the mind, um, which is being represented as that which pertains to the flesh. So in the life of the believer, we see here the body and the mind is representative of that which relates to or is described by this term, the flesh. It says, um, we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So there is a sense in which we as believers, of course, we still have a body, we have a mind, but we're spiritually regenerated. Prior to regeneration, our spirits were dead. We talked about this last week, so I'm not going to unpack it again. Please do go back and listen to it. An unbeliever is spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins. And so therefore, they are just given to the influence and the dictates of their body and mind. They are submitted to and under the dictates of the body and mind. Once we experience spiritual regeneration, there's a change or a transformation that takes place in us at a, at a fundamental level, at the core of our innermost being. And yet, although that spiritual regeneration has taken place. 
this conflict still exists. And that's because there is further work yet to be done. Now, a couple of verses that will help to clarify for us the, the reality of this spiritual regeneration. Because as we go through this conflict, there's no doubt that we can feel like actually nothing's changed within us. John chapter 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, the quote-unquote teacher of Israel. He's like the head teacher. And yet Nicodemus didn't understand this talk of being born again, of being made anew. And Jesus says to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand what I'm talking about? Why would Jesus say this to him? Because it was predicted in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36 verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And so our pre-Christian hearts were being viewed as like a lump of rock. Now, we understand that rocks don't have feelings, etc. And so there's this sense of just being hard-hearted. Ezekiel um, 11:19, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So we see the term spirit being used synonymous with the word heart here. And so there's a sense in which a work has taken place within the life of the believer that now causes us to have a different experience to that of the unbelieving individual. A couple more verses that I think are going to clarify this a little further and help us as we move forward in regards to how do we not gratify the desires of the flesh. Romans 8, verses 5 to 9. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Notice this. For those who live according to the flesh, who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So there's a clear sense in which the focus of our mind is the pivotal factor. It's the key factor. Where is our mind at? Where is our attitude at? If we have our minds on the things of the flesh, or if a person has their minds on the things of the flesh, they're going to live according to the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It goes on to say, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so this statement here distinguishes between the believer and the unbeliever. Those who are in the flesh, it's not just talking about those who put their minds on the things of the flesh, the worldly mentality, bodily impulses and desires, but actually it's saying those whose state and status is that they are people who are in the flesh. And so again, we relate back to our verses in Ephesians and understand that if somebody is 
an unbeliever, their spirit has not been renewed, not been born again, then they are somebody who is spiritually dead, dead-hearted like a stone, spiritually speaking, their spirit's dead, but their soul and their body is completely given over to sin and the dictates of Satan. That is not only their experience or their state, but it's also their status. Now, this is clarified for us by Paul in Romans. He says, speaking to believers, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Once we were in the flesh, that was our status, but now we are in the spirit. We've been changed from darkness to light. A way that helps me to kind of grapple with what's, what's being said here is this. I want you to imagine somebody who's a driver and they've driving for years, but they've got no license. And, you know, they may have developed bad habits. Some of you are having flashbacks. It's all right. <laughs> driving for years, got no license. <laughs> I don't want to call any names, you know, because I've heard some testimonies. <laughs> Picked up some bad habits. But it doesn't matter how good a driver you are, because of your status, anything that you do is illegitimate. It doesn't matter how good a driver you are. And yet you have somebody who has passed their test. Their status has changed. They may have bad habits, but they're legitimately permitted to drive. And so therefore, this is like the difference between one who is in the flesh and one who may behave in ways sometimes consistent with the flesh. First and foremost, the question is, what is the status of the individual? Are they in right relationship with God or no? Because if they are, they are not in the flesh without any kind of way out. They are in the spirit. Because look what it goes on to say. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So if you're genuinely a Christian, you have God's Spirit. If you don't have God's Spirit, then hmm. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Now this isn't speaking for those who may be coming from backgrounds where the only kind of association or understanding you have of the Holy Spirit is related to speaking in tongues. I know that there are those who would say, you know what, once you've received tongues, the gift of speaking in tongues, then you have the Holy Spirit. But until then, we can't vouch for the fact that you do. There are some places that will say that. In fact, there are some places who will say, actually, if you don't speak in tongues, we don't even know if you're a Christian. But this contradicts that. And the Bible teaches in the New Testament that once somebody has placed their faith in Christ, having repented of sin, coming into right relationship with God, the Holy Spirit comes to live in. And this is why Paul says these, this verse in this way. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, I mean, it's a given. If you are His, His Spirit is in you. If his spirit is not in you, then you're not his. And that is not evidenced as by speaking in tongues. That's another conversation for another day. So, for the believer, you are not in the flesh. And you are not bound, limited, or enslaved to behave in ways that are consistent with the flesh. but you are in the Spirit. So when we come to the statement, and some of you who were eagle-eyed would have noticed that I didn't reference this um, last week. I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You should be encouraged as somebody who is a Christian, if you are, 
that you are not being called to do something that is beyond your ability. You're not being called to do something that is an impossible task for the Christian. It is an impossible task for us in our own strength. But because the Spirit of the Lord is within the believer, he bears fruit in us as we walk by the Spirit, by His power, by His enabling, by His strength, by His motivation. And so by walking by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. As we went through the list, even as we read it again this morning, and you probably kind of saw things and thought to yourself, oh my days, what am I going to do? How am I going to overcome? You're able to be encouraged. It's not something you have to strive to overcome. I tell you something, this, is a, a, this was a revelation to me, and it was a, a real breakthrough in my walk as a Christian. So often, there's this sense of, as a Christian, I have to strive to be like Jesus. And it feels like stress, and it feels like a hype, and a, and a madness at times, because we can't. And yet, we're not called to strive, we're called to surrender. To surrender to God's work in us, in Christ Jesus. Somebody once said, the greatest way to overcome evil is to do good. And in a general sense, that statement has its limitations. It could almost suggest that, well, you know what, if I just want to overcome the evil of this world and the evil in myself, I'll just be a good person. That is contrary to scripture and contrary to the reality of human existence. But in some senses, there's a helpful sentiment here, especially for the Christian. Because, you know, we might struggle with anger, struggle with lust, struggle with pride, and we kind of get ourselves in a place where we'll be like, I'm not going to be proud. I'm not going to be proud. I'm not going to be proud. I'm not going to be angry. <laughs> and we, we kind of focus our mind on the, the negative thing that we're trying to overcome. And it's a bit like me saying to you, don't think about a big gray elephant with big ears and a trunk. What have I done? I've just put it in your mind. And you're, and you're thinking, why did he even say that? So rather than focus on the negative, let's focus on the great work of Christ that he does in his people by the Spirit as represented by that which is the fruit. And so we are told in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now I want to highlight and emphasize this. And... Um, Ever since this became a, a reality for me, it became a reality for me. This is speaking in a singular sense. It does not say the fruits of the Spirit are. And it's unhelpful and unhealthy if we think about it as being fruits of the Spirit. It's one fruit. Often, we see pictures like this portraying the fruit of the Spirit. And so we see this tree with all kinds of fruit on it, which practically doesn't make sense. Logically, it's not consistent because there is no such tree that exists like that that will give you all of these fruits on one tree. One of the problems with this, if we look at the fruit of the Spirit in this way, is that we can think, well, my fruit is patience, but I don't have to be generous. I don't have to be um, self-controlled. Or their fruit is obviously kindness. They don't have much peace. Well, no, they might not because they don't have that fruit. But they have kindness. No. So this is unhelpful. It's not 
oh, one person kind of majors on one fruit and another person majors on another fruit and so on. That's unhealthy. Because then we can kind of just check out and say, well, that's just not my portion. And make excuses for our bad man fleshliness. (laughs) Sometimes we see it portrayed like this, which is a little bit more helpful, but still not quite the case. Same difference. Thank you, brother. Because we look at it and we see different fruits amalgamated together in one, like a fruit salad. (laughs) But it can leave us in the same place. And we might say, okay, well, I have these fruit, but I don't have that fruit in my package. You know when you go in Sainsbury's or Tesco's or whatever, and you're looking for the little fruits for your lunchtime snack, and you're looking for the one that doesn't have melons in there, because you just don't like melons. And so you want strawberries, grapes, blueberries, but you don't want any melon. And we can kind of look at ourselves in that sense and excuse certain things in our lives because it's not part of our package. But again, that's not true, it's not healthy, and it's not helpful. I would suggest that this is probably a more helpful way. One fruit of different segments. Notice it says nine a day, I like that. Make sure you take your nine a day. One fruit of different segments, or having it portrayed like this. And so what we're seeing is that this fruit is the result of the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of the Christian. And all of these characteristics or attributes are present and exist in the life of the believer. All of them. Now, Sometimes we may have a disproportionate amount of one over another, but they are all there. And there is no excuse for us not to expect even of ourselves, first and foremost, that God would work this in us by his spirit because his spirit is present in us through faith in Jesus. There's no excuses. Some may need cultivating more than others, and I wanted to try and find a deformed orange that had like small segments and bigger segments, and, but uh, long. You get the idea. Some, some segments might be just a little smaller than others, but they're all present. It's a whole. And so it's, It's one fruit, and I would even go as far as to say the one fruit is love. We understand that God is love, and these characteristics are attributes of God that are deposited within us by the presence of the Spirit and made manifest according to His working in us. And so... The fruit is love as expressed in these various ways. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Jesus said, it is by your love for one another that all men will know that you're my disciples. True or false? By your love for one another. And how is that love outworked? In our loving one another, we have joy, peace, etc. Now, I think that it's really um, necessary for us to think for a minute. Um, being out in Lewisham doing evangelism. <clears throat> I'm often very encouraged at the freedom to really just declare the gospel. And it's been a blessing over the last few months. Um, Just seeing the way that people actually are engaging with the, the preaching that's going on and engaging with 
the leaflets being passed out. And not yesterday, but the um, last time I was out, a few weeks back, I just felt compelled to really just hit on this issue of love. Because the reality is that people are looking for love, as they say, in all the wrong places. People have an innate need for significance, a fundamental desire for approval, for recognition, to be respected, to be appreciated. And regardless of what kind of angle it takes, fundamentally it comes down to the need and the desire to be loved. And so we're able to kind of look at this and recognize, first and foremost, that we, in knowing Christ, actually know love. We know love, not just in a theoretical sense, but if we truly know Jesus, we truly know love. Otherwise, we don't truly know Jesus. This is what Paul's saying here. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And you might look at that and think, how does that say what you just said, Pastor E? Let's think about what this statement is actually saying. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have, past tense, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so this is relating back to how it is we come into relationship with God through Christ. It re relates to crucifixion. Now, some of you might think, well, I know Jesus was crucified, but how, have, how do I crucify the flesh? This is the sweetness of the gospel. Oh, my gosh. Think about this. Jesus is sent by the Father... And he's sent to redeem, to rescue humanity from their sinful fleshly nature. To provide forgiveness and bring us into right relationship with God. So Jesus lives a sinless life. Sinless. And he loves everyone righteously. Even to the point of making himself vulnerable unto death. Even when he was not loved in return. Even when he, his love was not reciprocated and people didn't respond to his love. Yet Jesus loved, even to the point of death. And so the people crucified Jesus. They nailed him to the cross, but not for anything that he had done wrong. Because he'd never done anything wrong. And even whilst on the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. When was the last time when somebody really was getting on your last nerve? When somebody really just caused you to feel infuriated or caused you to feel bitter or hurt and pained that you would actually say, you know what, Father, forgive them. Have such love that they don't know what they're doing. No. Lord, get them because they need to understand. They don't know who they're dealing with. That's the lack of knowledge that we call on, right? They don't know. Do you know who I am? But you're treating me like that. And yet Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't. And Jesus went, all went through all of this for you. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is what is meant by he gave. He gave him to take on the likeness of sinful man and live as a human and suffer and die at the hands of those he created, who he could have wiped out in a blink. 
we see these superhero films and we see Jean Grey just uh, obliterating people and, you know, we get these kind of representations and we don't understand that. You know, when Jesus says, I could have just called a legion an angel and done this, finish your party, done your dance, this, like, you don't understand, in that moment. <laughs> but he didn't. Why didn't he? For you and for me, because God loves you. Because God loves me. That's no, my bad. The um, thing went to sleep. And so, if you have any doubt that you are loved, then look to Christ and his suffering on your behalf. And then you can know that truly God loves you. Even when you don't feel like you're loved. Even when it feels like God is far away. There is an event that took place in history, objective outside of yourself, outside of myself, that stands for all eternity as being completed. And that is the death of the Son of God on your behalf. And because it was on your behalf, Jesus, having taken on your identity, now gives you his. And so this is what is meant by We've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Having put our faith in Jesus, our substitute, who was crucified in our place for our sin, we no longer are to be given to or expect to be entitled to fulfill our own desires and wants and wishes. Because our lives are no longer our own. It is no longer us that live, but Christ who lives in us. By his spirit. And so when you grasp that and you understand that God's love is so real that he went to that extent. And as a result, a, div a divine exchange has taken place. And it's no longer what I want, when I want it, how I want it, from who I want it. But it's actually about the Lord then in that we become real conduits of the Spirit of the Lord. You see, the next verse says, we are made alive by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, we're no longer spiritually dead. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. It's interesting because this talk uh, about fruit is in contrast to the talk about the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are those things that we produce of our own energy. But the fruit is born in us and through us by the Spirit. We don't see trees strenuously exercising in order to be fit to, to, to bear fruit. Trees just stand there and life flows from the root through the branches, through the trunk, through the branches. And in due season, the fruit is produced. And so it's not of our energy and effort. We just need to submit to the work of Christ that he has done and have faith in Jesus that what he says he has done has truly been done. And submit to that and surrender to that and let God have his way. But often, because we live in a place of self-absorption, self-centeredness, this is what Paul's saying, let us not become conceited, self-absorbed, self-exalting. Let's not big up ourselves even in our own minds. We might not walk around and say it with our mouth, but in our minds, it's all about us. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so the focus on self is actually diminished. It's eradicated. It's, it's taken away in knowing that we are lost in the love of Christ. 
that we are consumed by the love of Jesus. And we don't have to grasp for ourselves and reach for, our, uh, uh, for the love that we feel that we need because we've received it. We don't have to try and demand respect or manipulate people to appreciate us or try and exert power over people in all, these, in all, the, all, all the ways that lead to the works of the flesh. But we can just rest in the fact that we're loved by God. And as we rest in that fact, the result of it will be a joy. <laughs> the feeling of encouragement despite circumstances. Joy is different to happiness. Happiness is dependent on happenings. Good happenings happen, we're happy. Bad happenings happen, and we're unhappy. But joy is a, a feeling, of, feeling of encouragement despite circumstances. Because when you know you're loved by God, when you know that Christ is your Savior and you've been redeemed, your sins are forgiven, the way to God is open. We can come boldly before the throne of grace to receive help in our time of need. There's a joy there that no matter what happens, when you know that God, if God is for you, who can be against you? There's a joy there regardless of circumstances that causes you to sing in the face of your storm. There's a peace, an undisturbed state of mind. You know what? God's got it. It's under control. Every desire that I have, I just give it to him. In his way, in his time, he'll bring it about. We can have peace, as Isaiah said, a peace that goes beyond understanding. We're able to be patient. The capacity to accept or tolerate delay, problems, or suffering without becoming annoyed or anxious. It's not going my way. Just calm. We're able to be kind, friendly, generous, considerate, other people focused, other centered. Not just thinking about ourselves when we walk into a space. Who's going to say hello to me? You know, who's going to um, offer me to come out? Who's going to. Uh, no, no, no. No need for speaking to people in harsh words and harsh tones in fear of rejection. So I'll reject you before you reject me. We've been accepted among the beloved. We are the Lord's. Praise be to God. And so we're able to be friendly and generous because we're secure in who we are in Christ. Demonstrate goodness, moral uprightness, and constructive intent. Committed to doing the right thing because we won't fear feeling shortchanged or losing out because we know that Christ has done it all. I mean, we have Jesus. Everything else is a bonus. So if I don't get that promotion at work, it's okay. I don't have to try and inveigle myself into the position or Cut someone else out. Faithfulness. Being dependable and consistent. Being gentle, mild-mannered, and tender. And have self-control. The ability to regulate our actions. Now, you might look at that and say, yeah, that's so far from who I am. I mean, I'm grateful that the Spirit of the Lord is in me. And I'm grateful that, you know, this, this, this is uh, something that I'm able to look towards. And, and I want to encourage you and challenge you. Every tree goes through the seasons of life. And for all of us as believers, our fruitfulness is subject to seasons. 
there are times and ways in which we are more fruitful than others. And the reality is that, you know, we do want to grow and mature in such a way that we become like that evergreen that is fruitful all season round. But it's a process. It takes time. And so don't just throw your hands up. I can't be bothered. I'm not, I'm, you know what? Obviously, I'm not a Christian. I'm just going to. This is so far removed from who I am. I'll never be that. So what's the point? Because some of us can have that kind of fatalistic outlook. Well, if it's not going to happen now, then I don't care. I don't want it at all. There is a need for us to submit ourselves, to surrender, to persist, and allow God to have his work in us as we mature in Christ-likeness. Being encouraged. As we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so my challenge to you is allow God to have his way in you. Now, for some, as you're hearing this, you might understand that actually you've not really come to a place where you've surrendered to Christ. And so these qualities and characteristics they're a myth. I mean, you might see them, glimpses of them every now and then in small portions. But they don't characterize who you are. And in that place, I would suggest, you know what? Take a moment to reflect and do some soul searching before the Lord. Going to church doesn't mean that you have the Spirit of Christ in you. Being in the building or even among God's people doesn't mean that God's Spirit is in you. And as it said in Romans 8, if His Spirit is not in you, then you don't belong to Him. And not only will you not have those qualities and attributes being increasingly revealed in your life, but you won't know life. You are actually condemned to damnation. The Bible says in John 3 that the one who does not believe is condemned already because they have not believed in the Son of God. And you might say, well, uh, you know, I believe. Hmm. Do you believe in a way that indicates that you have put your trust in Christ? That actually you have surrendered your life to the Lord in such a way that he is now sole owner and boss of you? To know about Jesus isn't enough. To have grown up in church and heard about Jesus isn't enough. But you need to... Confronted by the good news of Christ, the gospel, make a decision. Are you going to put your trust in Jesus and submit to him as Lord and Savior? It's not either or, well, I'll take the Savior bit, but I'll leave the Lord. No, it's Lord and Savior. He's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. And so this is the challenge for you. You see, the reality is that we all see ways in ourselves that we are disgusted by. We all see attitudes and characteristics within our own life, even in moments, that we're disgusted by. And that reveals to us that we need Jesus. Not that we need to do better, but that we need Jesus to do a work within us and progress his work within us. And so I call on you today to trust in the Lord with all your heart and not lean on your own understanding. I call on you to recognize that you are unable to live out and fulfill all of these qualities consistently. If we're honest with ourselves, we would all say that. 
and I challenge you today to call on Jesus. Call on him and ask him to work in you by his spirit in such a way that transforms your very being. Because God is good. And his goodness is revealed in Christ. And as we consider these attributes, we recognize that they are no less <laughs> than God is. Because they're of his spirit. Think about that for a moment. That the God who is love is full of joy. That's not really a, a picture that you often kind of think about God being, you know, full of joy. That God is peace, patient, kind. He's good, faithful, gentle, and has self-control. Just thinking about that and associating that, not even focusing on, oh, this is what's expected of me. But this is who God is. This is who God is. What a wonderful God. What a wonderful Savior. I'm going to call the team back. Let's praise his name. Let's stand. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your commitment to your creation, to those whom you have made. We thank you for your love towards us, that you love us so much that you would not leave us as we are. But you're committed to changing us and conforming us, not just in principle, but also in practice to the image of your son. We thank you that you have given us the means by which that would happen. And it's not of ourselves. You've given us your spirit. And Lord, we ask that you would do a progressive work in us to make us more like you. Because truly, Lord, you are love, joy, peace. <laughs> Praise God. You are kindness and patient and gentle and good and faithful and full of self-control. such as who you are, infinitely so and more. And we're grateful to you, Lord. We give you praise that you would even care about us in such a way to make provision for our transformation. Have your way among us, Lord. In your name. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.